Your film is now ready to be shown. Good morning. I'm Justin Hendricks, editor of Tech Policy Press, a nonprofit media and community venture intended to provoke new ideas, debate, and discussion at the intersection of technology and democracy. Earlier this year, the Seattle Public Schools filed a lawsuit seeking to hold social media companies accountable for harms they allegedly cause to students' social, emotional, and mental health. The complaint against companies like TikTok, Instagram, Facebook, Snapchat, and YouTube seeks to change the way these companies operate and make them responsible for these potential harms. In a statement, Seattle Public Schools Superintendent Brent Jones said, quote, We need partners to work with us as we serve our young people, rather than companies placing a priority on profiting from the digital habits they've created as a way of captivating our students' attention. Our obligation is to create the conditions for students to thrive and have high-quality learning experiences. The harm caused by these companies runs counter to that. This lawsuit is part of a growing number of attempts in courts across the country to hold tech firms accountable for various alleged harms. My guest today is tracking such suits closely. Guy Bernstein is a law professor at the Seton Hall University School of Law. She writes and lectures on the intersection of law, technology, health, and privacy, and she is the author of a new book on the subject, just out from Cambridge University Press. I'm Gaia Bernstein. I'm a law professor and the co-director of the Institute for Privacy Protection and the Gibbons Institute for Law, Science and Technology at Seton Hall Law School. I'm the author of Unwired, Gaining Control Over Addictive Technologies. I'm looking forward to having a conversation about this book and all the effort that went into it. But for my readers and listeners who may not be familiar with your work prior, can you just Tell folks where you're coming from. Uh, what do you, you do research on? What do you teach about? And you know, how did you get to the place of writing this book? I've always been interested in the way that technology affects people. Many of my colleagues are interested in how we incentivize technology creation, how we incentivize innovation. And I have always throughout my career looked at how people are affected and what's the legal role which made me look at very, very different technologies, reproductive technologies and genetics and, of course, information technologies on privacy. And I started working on this because I basically noticed things were changing for me. I was suddenly realizing that I I usually work in the morning and I would sit down to work. And after two hours or so, I noticed that I was getting nothing done. And what did I do? I was... The time I was reading lots of blogs, I was surfing the internet, I was texting, answering emailing emails, and I started paying attention more and more to what was happening. At first, I thought, well, basically, people are not paying attention. This was around 2015, 16. But at a certain point, people became much more aware, and things were not changing. And then I realized that the book I have to write is a different book. It's not a book about what's happening. It's a book about what should be done. You wrote this book, I think it's fair to say, into the pandemic and through the pandemic. Um, And so your observations about the way that technology was influencing your behavior and your life and your children's life, which seems to be an important piece of this book, that kind of, I guess, went on steroids during the lockdown period. Yes. Basically, 
we got a feeling during the pandemic, especially during lockdown, which was quite extensive here in New York where I live, that we felt suddenly what it means to be in our screens all the time, how it feels in our bodies, how it fe- how tired we feel, how we crave a human interaction. So we could suddenly see what the future could mean for us as we spend more and more time on screen. I think at the same time, it gave me hope because everybody started noticing. Before the pandemic, parents were paying lots of attention. I ran a school outreach program of a half a dozen schools in New York and New Jersey, public schools in Newark, private schools in Manhattan, the whole range. My law students spoke to kids who got their first cell phone, fifth, sixth grade. And I spoke to parents about uh, basically balancing online, offline activities. And parents were very, very worried, but other people were not as worried. And something has changed for the pandemic. Many more people are paying attention and are much more aware of what they want their lives to be like and what they don't like about being on screens for so long. You say in the prologue to this book that it interlaces the human with the legal. So you, you know, you of course are doing this type of observation, um, and you're bringing in stories of you know things like overuse and addiction, but you also do bring in the science. And I wanted to ask you just about this thing that you've just now sort of signaled, which is this idea that we're feels like we're almost at or maybe slightly past a tipping point with regard not only to sort of the public's awareness that there's something wrong. And I'd agree with you, even in my own life, it feels like parents are uniquely aware of there being something wrong with our use of technology, particularly among young people. But it's also the science. It also appears that there's more science science piling up at the moment. Yes. There's been studies basically for years now, at least for decades, looking at the impact of screen time on cognitive development, on attention, on uh, mental well-being, on social disconnection, happiness. So in the last two or three years, first of all, there's been so many more studies, also more literature reviews of the studies. So you can see a bigger picture. At the same time, we got uh, more uh, brain imaging studies showing the impact of especially kids who are exposed to excessive screen time. So, And that really supplemented the psychology studies, which were already showing an effect on cognitive developments years earlier. For children at this point, it seems pretty clear that in certain areas, there's a big impact. I would say cognitive development mental health, attention. For adults, there's also lots of evidence, but for kids, there seems to be uh, more and more evidence of a public health crisis. You acknowledge this in the book, but you know, I'm certain there are people listening to this who may find themselves or think of themselves as in this category. There are a lot of folks out there who push back, who say, you know, this is moral panic. Uh, these types of concerns have accompanied the advent of every new communications technology. We've always worried about this with regard to children and how it might scramble their brains from the novel to radio to you know television, certainly. What's different at this moment? I think the best comparison is to look at television because people always said kids are spending too much time on television. They're not exercising. They are they're getting obese. They're not watching good content. 
but something is very, very different here uh, in several ways. First of all, I, I like to call the television the human bonfire. At least there was something about all of us watching the same screen together, all of us conversing about the same uh, thing. With screens, you can, with their phones, with computers, you could sit with people in the same room with your headphones and each person is looking at something different. In addition to that, yes, of course, you know, we always had commercial on TV, but we've never had what we have here, which is technology companies taking our human vulnerabilities and having an entire business model, which is based on keeping us online for longer. So basically, we know we get everything for free. We get Gmail for free. We get Facebook for free. But it's not really free. We pay with our data and we pay also with our time. Companies need us to stay longer online so they can collect more information on us. The more data they have, they can target better advertising into us, and then they need us to stay for longer. So we're exposed to the advertising and purchase products. So they have this incentive to manipulate us and to have us stay online for longer. And they're using very well-known psychology principles, which basically make us stay in ways we don't even realize. I'll give one example. So one example is they take away our stopping cues. There's a famous psychology experiment where people were given soup to eat and people who were given a normal bowl would just eat the soup. But people who were given a bowl where you couldn't see the bottom, they ate 70% more. Why? Because the stopping cues were taken away. This is what's happening all over the internet. You have, you know, you have the infinite scroll on Twitter, on Facebook, and Instagram. There's never an end. You go on YouTube or on Netflix, you have the autoplay. There's never an end. So there is something much bigger going on here than just, you know, us watching something, preferring not to get out. There's some, somebody else fighting against our willpower in a way that's sort of slanted against us. You make comparisons, uh, of course, to the way that cigarettes uh, were dealt with and, uh, of course, also to uh, food and the degree to which we've had to kind of contend with uh, the, you know, the problem of too much fat, too much sugar uh, in our diets and processed meat and that sort of thing. But I want to ask you about you know how you think about these kind of comparisons um, as useful ways of thinking about the type of litigation that may be necessary with regard to tech firms. Um, you call them the choice makers. Uh, you know, I'd agree. You know, they're the folks sort of essentially establishing the, the framework and the kind of game dynamics that we're all responding to in the digital environment on some level. Or what are the lessons that you see from litigation in tobacco and in food that could be potentially applied to tech? I think there's a lot to learn. The main thing, the lesson I think is most important is the way cigarette companies and food companies clutch onto the personal choice and personal responsibility argument. So basically what happened when the tobacco litigation started and smokers and their families started suing, the tobacco industry argued, well, Nobody forced them to smoke. They wanted to smoke. They're responsible for their health consequences, the lung cancer, the death. And courts accepted these arguments for years. 
basically they didn't attribute the responsibility to the to the tobacco companies. The same thing happened with food. The group of teens sued McDonald's because they were obese, because they suffered from diabetes. They used to eat at McDonald's every day. McDonald's argued and the New York court agreed. Nobody forced them to eat at McDonald's. Nobody forced them to supersize. And therefore, they and not McDonald's are responsible for this. So this is exactly what we're, we're already seeing this with tech. Gay manufacturers had to go when they went to um, uh, the FTC workshop on loot boxes a couple of years ago. They immediately pointed out that nobody forces gamers to play loot boxes is this addictive feature in games. Nobody forces them to play and they or their parents are responsible. And And in a way, tech is taking this already further because tech is giving us digital health tools in order to show us how we can control our urges because we are responsible. So we get um, screen time on our iPhone showing us how how much time we we spend on our iPhone. You go on Instagram, you can set it so you will know how long you've spent there. All these are tools which do not go to the heart of the addictive features. They are really putting the ball back in our court, exactly like the tobacco industry did and like the food industry did. I want to pause here and ask you about a couple of lawsuits that probably emerged, I suppose, after your book was you know, already with the publisher in uh, the Pacific Northwest, in, in Seattle, I think at least one other school district in Washington. We're seeing these complaints about social media's negative effects on youth mental health uh, brought by uh, school districts against you know, companies, including Meta, Google, Snapchat, ByteDance, which owns TikTok. What do you make of these suits? Uh, are you following them closely? Do you think they represent the type of model litigation that you're imagining will lead to change? I think this is incredibly important. And again, I just want to look back for a second because there's so much to learn from the past. When we saw that uh, smoke, that uh, tobacco companies started losing, part of it was because the attorney generals started suing for the costs uh, to the public health system of smoking. So suddenly, you know, this broke the personal responsibility argument because suddenly somebody who had nothing to do with smoking was bearing the costs. Now, what's happening here is interesting in two ways. First of all, it's exactly the same thing. You cannot blame the school districts who are saying social media is addicting the kids and they say on there for so long and they suffer from all these mental health consequences and we have to deal with it and the costs are on us. So again, you have somebody who you cannot blame for choosing bearing the costs. Very, very similar. Very interesting. They're also using an interesting uh, legal theory. They're saying that uh, social media is a public nuisance, which is a very, very different way to think about it. So I think this is very, very interesting, and we'll see how this develops. I'd say when I you know, read about these suits and kind of look at this idea of social media as a nuisance, I couldn't help but think about you know, how basically public workers in a range of different areas are having to kind of contend with the nuisance that's created for them by social media. I spent a lot of time over the last year looking at the plight of election workers 
the additional expense and security and just cognitive load they've carried uh, because of the violent threats against them, you know, following the essentially proliferation of, of false claims about uh, elections. You know, and this is a phenomenon that's true not just for election workers and teachers, but also for doctors uh, during the COVID crisis. Uh, you know, we could just go down the list of a range of different public entities that have had to sort of bear real costs, uh, but also to bear personal costs among the people who are involved. Right. So I, I think that is part of the issue. I think all of us, in a way, even employers are, are, are bearing the cost of this when their employees are online and they spend all this time instead of working, they are sitting there and they are on Facebook and nobody can really block. Now, when I started working in the law firm, it was the beginning of the internet. So they blocked our access to the internet. You cannot do this anymore. You cannot really block people because they need it for different things. So I think lots of workers, lots of entities are bearing the externalities of this. So strategic litigation is one route to change that you see. The other is privacy and the kind of activism around privacy, new legislation around privacy. You point to California, uh, you know, and its privacy legislation is perhaps the boldest yet, but we're also seeing you know, of course, other states, cities, towns uh, taking up that call. Why do you think uh, folks need to kind of take a different look at privacy? Privacy is important to for containing technology overuse for two reasons. First reason, it's part of the same business model. And but the thing is, the fights for privacy have been going on for a longer time. So just by looking at privacy, we can see that there's already so much pressure on the business model. And if there's restrictions on companies' ability to collect data, this may affect the whole model because if you cannot collect data, then it doesn't matter as much how much time people spend online because you cannot target advertising to them as well as did before. So I think there's a lot of hope that looking at the pressure on privacy will help technology overuse. We can also learn a lot about privacy because it's the same industry and they're operating in the same way and you can see how, first of all, for years, the technology industry with privacy said, we can self-regulate, we will solve the problem. After they deny the problem, they always said, we have solutions, we can solve this. So we can already see how it's impossible to trust an industry where most of what's done is you cannot see, it's not transparent. So... Heading the self-regulation route after what happened with privacy, I think is very, very problematic and is not a good idea. You raise the reality that, of course, in this country, uh, there's a big hill to climb uh, called the First Amendment uh, with regard to any legislation or uh, even litigation, perhaps, against tech firms. How do you think that that hill will be climbed or how, how will that particular uh, obstacle be scaled? I think we are likely to see uh, the tech company bringing up First Amendment claims in several situations. One will be if there will be a requirement, for example, to pause to post warnings. You know, if you go and like we have in cigarettes, this is hazardous for your health. Imagine if somebody goes on their social network and they see a warning, this could uh, affect your mental well-being. Uh, any required warnings, I'm 
pretty sure we're going to see First Amendment reaction. We saw this with food. We saw this when San Francisco wanted to put labels on sodas, warning about their, their impact on health. The um, beverage uh, industry fought and they won in court. They said this is coerced speech. They're not willing to say that. This is a violation of the First Amendment. And they won. So we're likely to see this as well. We can also uh, see if there'll be any prohibitions on addictive elements in the design. My, my big concern is that we're going to see arguments that design features are speech. They, there has been case, have been cases that already have been going in this direction. They have, there have been cases, there was a case with Snapchat and a speed meter, a design in a Snapchat that caused people to uh, film themselves that were speeding. And they tried to argue that it was speech and they failed. Many of these arguments don't fly, but some of them do fly. And if we're looking at Gonzalez and what's happening now, we don't know how this is going to come out and if and what what the Supreme Court will focus on. But in a situation where they focus on algorithms as um, protected under Section 230, I can see this also intense, basically uh, also um, strengthening claims that uh, algorithms are speech when they're there to make us spend more time online. So one of the things I like about this book is that you don't just stop with the criticism and the kind of problem definition, but you also set out a set of redesign principles. You name a sort of opportunity that perhaps is opening about how to rethink tech. What are some of those principles? What would you tell the makers that perhaps are in the audience that they should take into consideration? I think there are three principles and they're broad principles and there are many ways to implement them as we've seen for many bills that have been floating around. The first one is eliminating clearly addictive features. So some features are clearly up to no good. You take a feature like Snapstreaks. All Snapstreaks does is get teens back on Snapchat. Basically, if you send a snap within 24 hours and somebody sends it back, you have a streak. And then you start counting the days. You each have to sound to send uh, the snap streak back and forth every day. And then you have this chart with all your friends. Let's say it could say 152 with a certain person. You get a special badge. And but if you miss a streak, you lose everything. And for kids, you lose all your friendship. This is there for nothing but to get people to go on Snapchat and see the ads. There's no content. There's nothing there. So there's some. Elements like this, which are clearly that or the infinite scroll, which I mentioned earlier, that takes away our stopping signs, which are clearly just to keep us on for longer. Some elements could be uh, prohibited. Of course, as long as the business model is based on prolonging our time online, there'll always be new ones. So any kind of um, action has to predict or to have some kind of provision that will affect any future uh, features which are just there to prolong our time online. That's one principle. The second principle is about default settings. We now have an option on our uh, iPhone. We can restrict our time on certain apps. We can change it. We can also change it back. We also have an option of turning our phones gray 
We can do all these things, but none of them are the default option. Now, default matter because people, they think a few times before they change the default. If the default was, I have two hours on my phone, I can extend it. People view it as a recommendation. It changes. So making these restrictions a default that users can override could change the pictures. And the third principle, having devices which are mainstream devices, not um, some things which are on the market, which lets you have a light phone as an additional phone with fewer features. But, you know, have an iPhone for people who want to have all the features they need, like their alarm or maybe even their Google Maps and their texting, but they're not going to be able to go on Facebook or just browse and have a good phone like that for kids. So you can give your kid a phone that doesn't look embarrassing, but has features that they need. So that's the, the, the other principle. Have, having basically Google or Apple manufacture phones which are not made to make you overuse, but are more moderate in a way. You also describe a need perhaps to redesign the physical world and the spaces that we enter on a regular basis. The way we live, the places we spend time in affect us a lot. And when I'm talking about spaces, uh, I'll, I'll give two examples. One is a space that really matters in this whole story, and, and that is schools. What goes on in school doesn't stay in school. It infiltrates the home. Now, if your school incorporates screens into classwork, if everything is done, if, if now after the pandemic, we're having more and more schools incorporate games like Minecraft or Roblox in the curriculum, these game manufacturers have very active education departments. Uh, teachers are posting on uh, TikTok. All these things are basically increasing the amount of technology in the classroom. Federal policy encourages technology in the classroom. It's part of a model we had for many years, a laptop for every kid. Rethinking use of technology in these spaces is important because if your kid is working on the screen in the classroom, homework is also in the screens when they get home. You don't even know what the kid is doing at that point. How can you tell your kid to get off Roblox if that's an educational tool? So it's very important to think about what happens in school. France bans cell phones in schools. They want kids to talk to each other during recess. That's another option. It's happening in individual schools or municipalities in the U.S. And so that's one example of spaces. But spaces go beyond that. In New York City, if you go to the airports, all three airports have iPads at every table. On every table, you would have four iPads. You order for them. You cannot see the people sitting in front of you because the, the iPads between you can do nothing but use the screens. This is designing for overuse. We can design to not have people overuse in when they go to restaurants or to airports. And I'll give an example. That's a re more recent thing. After the pandemic, lots of restaurants still use the QR code. What does that mean? It means that the moment you sit down, you have to take out your phone in order to order. And from that moment on, the phone is on the table. Using regular menus sets a different norm. So there are many ways in which people, not just lawyers, can change how their businesses use, uh, basically encourage use of technologies.
I want to ask you a little bit about the political context in which you're putting this book out. Just a couple of weeks ago, uh, there was a hearing in the Senate about kids' online safety, and there appeared to be a a general kind of consensus uh, among the senators that something needs to be done, uh, that laws need to be introduced, et cetera. And yet you had a pretty wide range of ideas on display. You had folks like Josh Hawley, uh, Republican, suggesting, hey, let's ban all social media for kids under the age of 16. Um, And then you had, of course, some of the witnesses in the room suggesting, no, that's not the right way forward. Let's focus on design interventions, perhaps things more similar to what you suggested here in the book. What do you make of the political context in the U.S. at the moment? Perhaps then we'll widen it out and talk about other parts of the world. I think I'm hopeful. I'm hopeful this is the one issue where there seems to be bipartisan support. And I think that the types of proposals that are made are usually not connected to a specific party. You can find Democrats who also think that you might want to ban social networks for kids. So I, I, I think there's hope for movement. And I hope also people are realizing the urgency. What we talked about before, the fact there's so much data there. There's a whole generation of kids that spent over a decade exposed to excessive screen time. And many of these senators are parents. I, I think we might be able in this space, unlike uh, the issues related to freedom of speech and social networks here, we might be able to move forward. Some of your suggestions or even reference uh, some of the interventions that countries have tried abroad. You mentioned China, uh, some of the restrictions that it's putting on use of gaming uh, platforms, things of that nature. You know, critics of, of this way of thinking will look at this and say, really, you know, uh, you, you want to kind of handle uh, social media and games in, in the model of the, the Chinese? My goal in this book was to open the spectrum of options because I think we've wasted a lot of time and not nothing has practically been done. And Southeast Asian countries have spent the last decades experimenting, not just China, uh, Thailand, South Korea, Japan. Actually, it's interesting because right now, China and Japan have similar systems, which are very restrictive systems, basically restricting how much time kids can spend on games and on social media to very few hours a week. And other countries experiment with it and decided to stop. They decided the systems did not work. They thought it not work because they they had Cinderella laws and they had the kids uh, turn off at midnight and the kids went crazy because they could, couldn't play anymore. And then they tried to get into their parents' IDs. But there's so much, such a wealth of data there. I think it's just worth to look at what happened there and what we could consider and, and, and learn from them and then make up, make up our minds and not waste another decade fighting science wars and not looking at so much data that's been um, collected from trying out laws, some of them failed, some of them succeeded in many different countries in the South, in Southeast Asia. You know, a last question I would ask you is really kind of back to that question about moral panic. You know, there'll even be some from the left, perhaps, who would read this book and say, listen, 
it's more important on some level to give access to youth to these types of platforms to discover who they are, to be able to express their identities, perhaps to find their identity outside of the context of you know, their home or, or immediate community, that that's worth it, um, that whatever sort of social pain we're experiencing from the adoption of these media, the trade-off is there. How would you address that? So two things. First of all, not all content is alike. Social media is not like reading the New York Times. So we have to distinguish also if you're reading and you're making your own decision to stay online, that's fine. Read as much as you want. But don't think you're going online for 20 minutes and realize an hour and a half have gone by and you've done nothing but click for one thing to the other. It's more about the way we're doing it, the lack of autonomy in which we're doing it than being exposed to content. I think it's important not to mix the two. I, the one thing I would like to say is that there are there's already a lot of action underway. So people should realize that there's lots, you, we mentioned the Seattle uh, school lawsuits, there are lots of class actions by parents. All these bills that are coming up, you know, they will fail. But looking at the past, things fail until eventually they succeed. When we're not just starting out, there are lots of people involved in action here in Europe. For example, many countries have restricted loot boxes, which is an addictive features in kids' games. So there are things going on. And I think it's important to remember the, the ways in which we can influence things. One, through exerting pressures on tech companies to redesign. Another is through indirect pressure in order to um, change the business model, and this is already taking place for antitrust action against big tech. Any change, any success there will destabilize these markets, create more competition. We might see new business model not based on time. And also to remember that people can do things collectively. The main thing is instead of focusing on how unsuccessful we are fighting it ourselves, is to realize that we can take it to the public sphere and do things through collective action. We've been stuck for too long trying to fight with ourselves in front of our computers, fight with our kids, try to grab their technology. It's not going to be resolved this way. Can you paint a picture of what the world would look like if everyone reads your book and the sorts of lawsuits that uh, you're talking about here are successful and the kinds of laws passed that you suggest and tech executives maybe turn over a new leaf? What does it look like 20, 30, 40 years from now? Right now, we're heading in a very clear trajectory. We're heading towards more immersion in virtual reality, towards smart cities, towards being connected everywhere. So the first thing is basically to, to stop and think for a second where we're heading. Now, my goal is not, you know, we're not going to go back to screenless world. We're not, connectivity is here to stay. And there are lots of good things about it about this. But on the other hand, we can make autonomous decisions about what's a healthy online-offline balance for ourselves and spend time on screens, but be able to decide when I want to get off because it's my decision. It's not some power I'm not even seeing that's manipulating me to stay on. So I, I think as a society, we never realize what was happening. We're a bit like the frog in the water. 
you know, we took all these small steps, you know, adopting another app, texting on the go, and we didn't pay attention. We never stopped to think if that's what we want, how much of this we want. I think the opportunity of taking a pause and thinking exactly how we want to balance things is very important. And I'm not, that's the reason why I gave so many options in the book. I'm not trying to dictate a specific balance. I just think that we have to think about what balance works and the trajectory in which we were heading, I thought was scary. Well, I appreciate you taking a moment to pause and talk about your book with me. Uh, Of course, that book is Unwired, Gaining Control Over Addictive Technologies. Thanks so much for speaking to me today. Thank you so much for having me. That's it for this episode. I hope you'll send your feedback. You can write to me at justin at techpolicy.press or find us on Twitter at techpolicypress. Thanks to my guest. Thanks to my co-founder, Brian Jones. And thank you for listening. Tech Policy Press.